0: Good evening. John one we're going to start in verse 35, we're moving on through the narrative here, um, wrapping up with John the Baptist, so we're going to give him a good farewell tonight, I hope. <laughs> uh, let's actually pray before we read the scripture tonight. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we we come as Your children, adopted by the blood of the Lamb. We come as those united with Him, hid with Christ on high, having counted all things as loss, forsaking all the things that we used to count as gain, Lord, that we might have Christ. And we're here tonight because we value Him, because we want to supremely value His worth over all all the things we could be doing right now. Um, Father, lift Him up among us. Exalt Him. Exalt Yourself. Bring glory to Yourself as we open Your Word. Help us to see ourselves in the light of Your Word. Father, we pray that, that this would be an hour of worship, that, that our hearts would glow with affection for You, that we would see You as, uh, as worthy and honorable and deserving our heart's affection. Do that as we look to your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and read John 1, 35. Um, I think we'll just stop at verse 42 since I'm almost certain I won't get further than that. The next day, again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard Jesus speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We've found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, "So you are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means Peter." Maybe see Well, since we're going to lose sight of John here really soon, um, his public ministry is essentially done. Uh, you know, somebody has compared John the Baptist to Moses. Remember Moses? Who I just remember Moses, but. Remember that he gets them to be part of this glorious privilege of going and getting the Israelites and being part of the redemption, leading them through the sea, through the wilderness, meeting with God, sticks with them for 40 years and all their grumbling and complaining and gets to the edge of the promised land, right across the creek of the Jordan River, and there he has to stay and die. You know, he, gets, he leads them all the way up to the point of glory and is not permitted to go in. And that's sort of, someone said that's sort of like John the Baptist. Uh, he, he's bringing the people right up to the edge of glory, um, and now he steps out of the picture. Uh, not to suggest he's not redeemed, but he doesn't get to become a, uh, one of the twelve, right? One of the apostles, one of the intimate followers of Christ. But before we let John go, we'll see him at least one more time later on, but um, we, we want to take strong notice tonight of what happens here the day after John first declared, there's Jesus. He's the one. He's the Lamb of God. That was last week. Verse 35 says, the next day, again, so apparently Jesus is still hanging around the area wherever John is baptizing. And John sees Jesus walking by. doesn't say he's walking to him. It's kind of mental picture, John and a few of his disciples are standing on the, the side of the, of, the, of the river and perhaps Jesus is on the other side or walking down the trail just mingling, talking to people we don't know but he's just walking by and John says, not so much to Jesus but, but almost to himself just loud enough for the other two disciples standing next to him to hear that's it, that's him, that's God's land just like he said the day before who are these two disciples? Well, one of them we find out a little bit later on is Andrew, Peter's brother. And the other one doesn't get a name. Uh, that that makes some commentators think that probably it was possibly it was John uh, the Apostle, the writer of this Gospel. As you'll see, he is very reluctant to name himself. He always refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved or as an anonymous disciple, the other disciple. So it's very likely this could have been him. Um, but we're not exactly sure. But they hear John's confession, and they almost take it as an invitation directed towards them. Their teacher, the day before, just declared, this is the one, he's the one we've been waiting for, we've been talking about, we've been preparing for. And so the next day he reaffirms that truth, and almost says it with a sense of wonder. I think you can see John sort of shaking his head. He's been doing this for years, been waiting for this moment, And he's like, there he is, the Lamb of God, right there. He's just walking by me, like just kind of in awe. And this time they leave and they go follow him, these two men. Understand that's exactly what's supposed to happen, right? John was supposed to be preparing the people of God to follow Jesus when he came. And so here's Jesus and off go two of John's disciples. That's exactly right. That's it. That's what's supposed to happen. But still, you can't help but think, what was John thinking as he watched these two disciples walk away from him towards someone else? These are his disciples. If you've ever discipled somebody, that's a great privilege and honor, right? I mean, it's a great privilege for somebody to to want to sort of apprentice themselves to you. They respect you. Um, but even even more so, here these men they didn 't just say, "Hey, will you meet me for breakfast you know on Monday mornings or whatever and, and I mean, they, they, they committed to living with them, learning from them, following them. Uh, John had no doubt spent lots of time and energy on these two men, and now here they go, walking away from him to follow somebody else, to be somebody else 's disciples and wonderfully, John lets them go. He lets them walk away from this relationship with him. Not only does he let them go, but but I take it from the tone of this text that he he, he actually suggests by his confession that they go. And that's a real man of God right there. In a world that, we've said this before, but in a world that's consumed with building our own individual kingdoms, John stands as a glaring light in that darkness. He, he apparently was never building the kingdom of John. That's not what he was doing at the, at the river there. And that's made known right here. When push comes to shove, John shows his true colors. For him, this has all been about the kingdom of God and the glory of God. So what about us? Whose kingdom are we building and pursuing? You guys heard of Paul David Tripp? Um, he, he wrote a book. One of his lesser known books is called A Quest for, for More. It's my favorite one. Um, and the central premise of the book is that in every single thing we do, everything, every act of breathing even, um, turning off, hitting the snooze on the alarm clock like my wife did this morning, uh, laying your head on the pillow, putting a bite of pizza in your mouth, speaking a word to your coworker as they pass by, everything, in everything we do, we are trying to build a kingdom. It makes a really good case for it in that book. And there's three options for whose kingdom we're trying to build. Typically, we're trying to build the kingdom of self, right? Sometimes you'll find a person trying to build another man's kingdom. That's usually involved in a political campaign. People get obsessed with one person, and they just, with everything they, they, everything they have, they just want to see this one person's kingdom succeed. And then once in a while, once every blue moon, you'll meet a person who is consumed with building the kingdom of God. Those are really the only three options. So whose kingdom are you building? And it's, it's, it's one thing to think about that at the macro level, like, yeah, I'm trying to build the kingdom of God. But, but narrow, boil it down to the level we just spoke of. The sort of, I woke up this morning, got dressed level. When you got dressed this morning, particularly for the girls, but whose boundaries, to which kingdom were you trying to expand? Were you trying to promote? Was it, I'll look pretty in this dress. That sounds like acquiring more for my kingdom, doesn't it? When you know, here here's one. When you called uh, I think of the last time you called to your relative to find out how they were doing. <clears throat> was the was the motivation in your heart, I need to call them because they expect me to call them and I want to meet their expectations. I want them to think I'm responsible and and you know meet their meet their expectations. I want them to like me. Well then that's the kingdom of self. That's advancing our own kingdom. We can advance our own kingdom even in doing godly things, you know, outwardly godly things. And that's what we do. We love to build our kingdom. We want more. That's what the book's called The Quest for More. More appreciation, more honor, more friends, more money, more goods, more love. We're always pursuing that more and grasping to establish and maintain and advance our kingdom. And in the midst of that, here's John the Baptist. At this critical moment in his life, he shines as one that didn't want more, but said, I must decrease. And by saying, friends, you see that guy over there? He's the one you should really be following right now. Not me. Don't follow me. Leave me, follow him. And that's it. you got going to love John the Baptist for that. That takes a man or a godly woman to say that. That's an amazing thing to say. I think only by the empowering work of the Holy Spirit could a man willingly watch their own kingdom diminish for the sake of God's kingdom advancing. That's a work of the Spirit. So if you see that happening in your life, if you see yourself willingly suffering the diminishing of your honor or the diminishing of your glory or the diminishing of your possessions for the sake of the advancing of God's, that's a movement of the Spirit in your life. So let's let John once again serve in our lives this week. By God's grace, he can just gently prod us to pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. God, today, bring your kingdom in my life. Build your kingdom. Not my kingdom, build your kingdom. Advance and establish your kingdom. That's what that's what Paul commanded us in 1 Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, to everything the glory of God. That's he, That's the same as praying, your kingdom come. Today, when I pick out what clothes I'm going to wear, let your kingdom come. Today, when I figure out what's for lunch, let your kingdom come. Well, in verse 38, the two disciples are now following Jesus, literally, physically following him. And he turns around and says, what are you seeking? Now, when you see something like that from John, much less Jesus, you know it that probably has a much deeper meaning than just... Where you are you going? I don't think that's what Jesus was asking them. I don't think that's what John is posing to us either. Um, I, I think Jesus is asking a more profound question. That is, what is that you're seeking? Why are you following me? What are you after here in this? He's going to ask them that again and again in the Gospel of John, which is why I think that. But they don't quite get it. They kind of give this awkward answer. Uh, we just, we, Well, we just wanted to see where you were sleeping. We just want to see your hotel room, basically. Kind of strange answer. Um, so Jesus says, we'll come and you'll see. And, and here, we're going to take a, a moment to dwell here because at the very minimum, when Jesus does this, at the very minimum, we're going to zoom out, but we get a glimpse of the hospitality of Jesus. I don't think that's the main point of this text, but so I don't want to lose sight of the text here. But the disciples there's not that much of this paragraph. <laughs> um, the disciples end up staying with Jesus that the rest of that day. And I'm going to assume they spend the night with him for a couple of reasons, but John tells us it was the 10th hour. Now, he, you probably know this, but um, the Jews counted the zero hour as 6 a.m. They counted as 12 a.m. So you have to just add 10 to 6 get military time. You get 4 p.m. So it's 4 p.m. in the afternoon, they don't practice daylight savings time, as far as I know. Um, so, this is the time, 4 p.m. is the time when Jewish people started to either make uh, make arrangements for food that night, and if they were traveling, make arrangements for lodging. So, it's pretty deliberate, John tells us. It's 4 p.m., Jesus invites them into his home. He's going to feed them. They're going to eat with him. They're probably going spend, to spend the rest of the day with him. They probably spend the rest of the night with him. And I love that story for at least two reasons. Number one, it makes the story of Jesus so real. Not that it's not real. It makes you feel the reality of it. It sort of puts flesh and blood on this grandiose story of Jesus, the Son of God. He met a few guys. He had them over for dinner. They crashed at his place because it was too late for them to walk home. They just hung out that night with Jesus, which is crazy, right? They stayed and ate in his room. It's great. Um, it's, it's good to be reminded of these sort of mundane things when you read the Gospels because we're usually, we're, we're reading the Gospels and we know the end of the story and we're thinking about these grand, big, universal truths and you almost lose sight of the fact that this is a, these are three real people in actual history. If they had a camera, we could see a picture of them hanging out around the table, eating some fish and some bread that's Jesus you know. It's just a, a, you have, to, you have to stop and appreciate those moments in a story like this um, and you know we're, it's, it's almost like we're reading the diary of a guy who spent the night at Jesus' house because it was late and, and because Motel 6 won't be around for 1,950 years so it's a pretty cool story but, but beyond that I love this story because we see Jesus obeying the commands of God in our behalf That's what he's doing here. He's already obeying the command of God in our behalf. This is something I told you we were going to point out regularly as we walk through the gospel together. I want to remember that what we see Jesus doing here is accomplishing our righteousness. So, So think about the gospel. Our sins are counted as Jesus' sin on the cross and punished. That's called the passive obedience of Christ. But there's also the active obedience of Christ which is, for 33 years approximately, they didn't celebrate birthdays, but for approximately 33 years, Jesus lived fully under the law of God, and He did every single thing God required of us. And He did it with a pleasing heart, full of love for God. In other words, He obeyed the full law of God, all the statutes of God, perfectly. And He attained righteousness. So, it's a little bit different... to be, to be without sin, to be righteous, you know the semantics here, but they're, they're a little bit different, aren't they? Because to be without sin is sort of a neutral position, if you want to think about it in an easy way. You could start out that way before you've done anything, if we weren't all counted as sinners in Adam. But, but even Adam, when he was born, before he sinned, he hadn't attained righteousness because he hadn't obeyed. He hadn't fulfilled the law of God yet. So he's without sin, but he also has an accomplished, a pleasing righteousness before God. Jesus is born without sin, part of the reason, for first version for it. And, but not only is he without sin, he's with righteousness. He perfectly pleases God throughout his life. And here's an instance of that. God has commanded you and me that, to, to, to be hospitable. You know that? Yes, you did. He commanded us to be hospitable. right? right? Um, let's listen to a few verses. Titus 1, 7 to 8. Talking about a pastor, an elder. I believe, as Dennis does, I know that pastor, elder, and overseer are three words in the New Testament that refer to the same office. Okay? So here are the qualifications for a pastor. And none of these are unique to a pastor. They're almost set up as if... This is what, a pastor should be a godly man pursuing God. Here's what that looks like. Titus 1, 7. An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but, what? Must be hospitable. That's a qualification to be an elder, is that you be hospitable. In other words, God requires that of godly people. 1 Peter 4, 9. You don't have to turn here if you don't want to. It's just one sentence. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In other words, not only are we just be hospitable, but we're supposed to be delightfully hospitable. We're supposed to enjoy it. We're supposed to want to be hospitable, which is impossible. It's one of those impossible commands of God. It's, this, isn't, this isn't even... Um, this isn't Islam where we are just commanded to do something, God goes beyond just what we're supposed to do, but tells us what we're supposed to feel as we do it. And we throw up our hands and say, well, how am I supposed to change that? That's right. That's right. It's the gospel working in our heart that changes that, isn't it? <clears throat> My favorite verse on this, Hebrews thirteen, two. That's a good one. You can turn there. Hold it's good, but... <laughs> Hebrews 13, well 13:1, 13, let brotherly love continue. Verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hebrews 13:2. That's that's a weird one, isn't it? <laughs> um, the Greek word for hospitality is philoxenos, which which is a compound word for love and stranger. Love and stranger. The word hospitable, hospitality, means love strangers. Love strangers. <clears throat> so the ESP is a little bit redundant when it says show hospitality to strangers. It doesn't actually say that in the Greek, but um, the the RSV version here, the Ryan Standard version, would read like this, which I hope is less liberal than the real RSV. Don't neglect hospitality. For by being hospitable. Some have unknowingly been hospitable to messengers. And yes, I believe that means messengers, not angels, but... Well, I'll tell you real quickly why I believe <laughs> um, So the word "angelos" is the Greek word for, for angel. It, it means messenger. Okay, so the, the Greeks had no word for a spirit being sent from God. They called them messengers. The word for that was angel. Okay, now... So... That word throughout the New Testament sometimes refers to God's messengers, which we have a special name for, the spirit beings called angels. Sometimes it refers to regular old people. Jesus um, sends angels ahead of him into Samaria to make preparations for his stay there. Well, that was his disciples, so they weren't angels, right? They're messengers. John the Baptist sends angels to go and ask Jesus, Are you the one to come or should we expect somebody else? Those are his disciples, those are people. Regularly throughout the New Testament, that word means messengers. So you can't just see it and say, oh, spirit beings. Sometimes it means that. And the, the translators of this verse had to decide, do we think it means spirit angels or do we think it means messengers? This is taking too long. i will try to hurry up. <laughs> uh, my opinion is it means messengers. I think there's a category in the New Testament that, that churches had messengers, and this was like a leader the leader of the church, the messenger of the church. I think you see that here. I think you also see that in Revelation 1, two and three when it talks about to the angel, of the church of Laodicea, Pergamon, uh, Ephesus. Nowhere else in the Bible do we have any concept that a church is assigned an angel. But there does seem to be a notion that there is a leader, sometimes called an angelos, of a church. And it makes a lot more sense that God would be holding that person accountable. That's a perfectly legitimate reading of that word, too. So, I think what Hebrews 13.2 is saying is that some people, uh, some Christians, out of the grace of God working in their lives, opened their doors at night, there were some people passing by, and they just took them in. They had no idea who they were, they were strangers. They just brought them in the house. And it turns out these are, these are leaders of the New Testament church. Or maybe they are spirit angels in the flesh. You could decide which one you want to believe. It doesn't really matter here. Um, either way, that's a really cool verse, isn't it? <laughs> Although the, the word hospitality doesn't occur in the Old Testament, the idea is everywhere. It's everywhere. The, the foundational passage for all of hospitality in the Bible is Leviticus 19. Just focus and listen. I don't want you to be distracted trying to find that for a second. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. Now that is revolutionary. Treat the foreigners like they belong here. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Okay. <clears throat> Why? For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. There's the ground for hospitality. You treat the people who don't belong as if they did because you didn't belong, but I didn't treat you like that. Right? We could read Deuteronomy 10, uh, Job 31:32. As I said, it means stranger love, love towards outsiders. And the reason God has commanded us to be hospitable is because that's what he has done for us in the gospel. Amen. We're not born as sons in the family of God, are we? We're born as strangers, aliens, outsiders, even worse, enemies. Not just people from a different country, people who were at war with him. And yet God in his mercy brings us into his family. We had no right. We had no claim. We couldn't knock on the door and say, Hey God, I'm your second cousin. Can I crash here tonight? We're we're his enemies. But he opened his home and he gave us a permanent seat in eternity. So he has thus defined hospitality for us in the gospel and so let's flip that around when we close up our homes when we close up our families or our lives and we have this sort of no thanks, not interested right? Uh, I'm just going to keep to myself attitude we're almost lying about the gospel we're we're almost I'm not saying we are because it's we're, but we're 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 borderline preaching a false gospel message. Nobody's welcome in my inner circle here. This is my circle. Nobody else deserves to be here, right? I need my privacy. This is my home. But what has God done for us? And I can't help but say this, beloved: If we can't do this with our own church family, mercy. If we can't open up our our homes and our lives. With our church family, how in the world are we going to extend that to our enemies, which is the level we've been called to do? Right? What an easy, easy is relative word, but what an easy way to preach a sermonette to your brother or sister than to say, hey, what are you doing our church? Come over. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to hang out with you. I'm going to give you my time and show you my inner sanctum where I live. Let me provide for you today. And they say, why? You say, just because I love you. Or if you're feeling particularly preachy, you can say, "Because that's what God has done for me in the gospel. Back to our text. That's what we see Jesus doing. He's doing just that, isn't he? And in the ultimate double entendre, we see him being hospitable both in a worldly sense and in the spiritual sense. I mean physical, not really. Sinfully, worldly. These men follow him because they're hoping to attach themselves to Jesus as his disciples. Right? That's what they're following. They want, to, they want to find out, should we be his disciples? What Jesus should have done is turn around and say, not what are you seeking, but what are you doing? Get away from me. No thanks. You're not worthy of me. Because they weren't. Right? They weren't. I'm the son of God. You're my enemy. You've been against me your whole life. Go back to John. I only take righteous people. Only righteous people sit at this table here and eat dinner with me, not you. Go back. But he didn't say that. So he portrays the gospel by having them over for one night, by having them over for three years, and by adopting them into his family and calling them friends for the rest of eternity. Isn't that awesome? We see him as the perfect man in terms of obeying the command of God to be hospitable, that we have not obeyed, And we see him being hospitable as the king of the universe inviting them into the inner circle of God so so look at this text and say thank you God because I know and you know that we have all failed miserably here I, when I say we've failed at being hospitable I'm not saying we haven't had people over for dinner maybe we have maybe we haven't but hospitality is a lot bigger than that isn't it Let's take this out to the next level. Hospitality means not just having an open door in your house, but having an open life. Having an open posture. Hospitality is living a life and having a family that's wide open to outsiders. And that is hard. It's hard and it feels dangerous. Having an open life that showers mercy and grace on people outside the family in a way that they don't deserve that's hospitality it's not less than having folks over for dinner after church but it's a lot more than that too and and we've all failed miserably because you know Jessica and I we live in a close um compact family uh, some of you guys have been there what's the word I'm looking for multi-family housing or whatever they're like townhomes you know and their our yard is like 10 feet wide so they're all um have you ever seen Edward Scissorhands, this old movie? It was, a, it was like in the, the 70s, or I think it was supposed to be set in the 70s. And everybody got home from work, exact same time, got out, locked at the exact same time. That's how it is in our neighborhood, which is weird. But people come Friday night, hit the garage door opener, pull in, shut the garage door, and they'll be back out on Monday morning. And you won't see them between now and then. And that's just a picture of our lives today in 21st century America, we don't really want to talk to people. We have to sometimes, but we don't really want to. We don't want to know people. We don't really want to hang out and meet new people and move into their life and invite them. Come on into my life. Because we have our own stuff. And just stay out. But that's not the gospel. If that was God, we would all be lost and burning in hell right this second. How we have failed. But then again, we haven't failed. Tonight, actually sitting here, united to Christ, by faith, we are perfectly righteous. And so, going through this, In in a strange and lovely gospel way, because Jesus was hospitable in John 1, because he's already obeyed this command of God for us, in so doing, he has enabled us to obey it as well. For all of our failures, for all of our snubbing of each other, for all the times we hated our enemies and didn't extend grace and mercy and hospitality to people who needed it, here's Jesus. Here's Jesus doing the very thing that we have failed to do. He was hospitable times infinity, right? And his hospitality is is counted by God as yours yours and yours and yours and yours and ours. If we're united by faith to Christ, it's ours. Praise God. It's imputed to us. Do you believe in the act of righteousness of Christ? It's given to us. He was righteous. That is ours. And so, that, that's, that's, the, that's the liberating sense of the righteousness of Jesus. We're not lost to wallow in what failures we are. We're free to know that in light of our failure, we stand before God as having already done this. Having done it perfectly. The Father said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm what? well pleased, he was pleased, he looked at Christ and said yes, you did it, that's what I asked you to do, and you did it perfectly and then the apostle Paul tells us, guess what Christ takes that pleasing righteousness of his, that he accomplished and gives it to us and it gives it to us so in this great great Martin Luther described it as Simultaneously, just and guilty, or just and sinner—that's us. We are. We sit here tonight as wretched failures who are absolutely perfect before the sight of God. It's the beloved gospel. Amen. Now, in verse forty-one, we get a very neat little nugget about how the apostle Peter first encountered Jesus. Um, apparently, the lakeside calling that we see in. The other gospel accounts wasn't the first time that some of the disciples met Jesus. Because John explicitly says the first thing Andrew did when he followed Jesus and found out who he was was he went to find his brother Simon. Let's be clear, his name was Simon. His name was Simon. He was the son of John. In those days, people didn't have surnames, or they didn't have last names. They just had first names, and so they would be called in one of two ways, usually they would be called by where they were from or who their dad was. So we've got Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus, you know, the one who's from Nazareth because there's a million Jesuses, which is weird to think about, but there were a million Jesuses in that day. Very common name. Uh, Or you've got Simon, the son of John. So he was known as the one who, you know, by his dad's name. So his name is Simon. But, and it's amazing to see right away, these guys at least on a surface level, they, they get, they're they not just following another John the Baptist, another teacher. They they feel like they're following the promised Messiah, Mashiach. So this is the only use of the Hebrew word Messiah in the Greek Gospel accounts. It's kind of interesting. The, the Hebrew Mashiach means the anointed one. And the way you say anointed in Greek is Christos. So they translated the Hebrew Mashiach to Greek Christos. So we call Christ and Messiah the same thing. Um, it's almost it's weird again this doesn't occur anywhere else in the, in the Greek New Testament so it's, it's almost like John uses the word here to convey the the, the first hand accountness like he was he tells us not just the sense of what was said he tells us the actual words that were used he was there he heard it which is another reason I think it was the Apostle John but Andrew says brother brother come quick come on brother you're not going to believe what we found we found the Mashiach. We found the Messiah. And so Simon comes, and the, it could be translated, so you are the son of Simon, which I like better. So you're the son of Simon. You just see, maybe Jesus has a smile, like, oh, I know what you're going to do. <laughs> I know who you're going to be, right? I've been waiting for you. And Jesus does something here that God does quite often in the Bible, because in the Bible a name means a lot. Uh, We were just talking about that at great length, right? Uh, Monday. A name represents the the man or woman behind the name. And so, Jesus gives Simon a nickname. In Aramaic, it's Kephas. People usually say Cephas, but, and that's how Paul can refer to him as Kephas. Well, the Greek version is Petros or Peter. Peter, Peter and, and Cephas are Greek and Aramaic words for Rock. Now, unlike today, Peter was not a name in the New Testament in Greek In Greece and the Greco-Roman world. People weren't called Peter. It would be as stri- calling Simon, nicknaming him Peter, was as strange then as it would be for me to give you guys a nickname of Pebble. Like that's just a weird name. You'd think uh, you were a hippie or something, right? Um, or Flintstones, yeah, that's true. I about <laughs> Wasn't that the dog though? Oh, that was. A little girl oh oops Devils. well there goes that point thanks both <laughs> <laughs> yeah but why does Jesus nickname Simon Peter Simon doesn't mean rock it probably is from the Hebrew word Shema which is to hear or heard it's got nothing to do with rocks or stones and, and furthermore if you say well he calls Simon rock he calls him Peter Nicknames him that because he's going to later on be the sort of chief of the apostles. The rock, Matthew 18 says on which he'll build his church. I would say yes, but standing there that day, Simon is just an everyday fellow. A fisherman. Not, nothing more. Not a saint. Not holy. Not the cornerstone of the church. A sinner. A doubter. Probably a troublemaker, judging on the rest of the story that we get it from Peter. To which I hope you would reply to me, Yes, Ryan, but God is in the business of calling men to be that which they are not. And I would say amen to that, if that's what you said there. <laughs> yes, that's our God. That's who he is. And Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus gives Simon the nickname Rock, not because Simon was a rock, not because Simon was a pillar of faith, but because in so calling him, he was making him that which he was calling calling to be. He's making, that, he's making him that which he was not. It's no different than Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God says, Light, even though there isn't light. There's no such thing as light. right? It just says light. What's light? It doesn't exist yet. But because God said it, now there is light. It's no different from Hosea 1. God says, The people called not my people will be called my people or my children. And though they were not his children, yet they become his children because he calls them his children. That's what's going on when Simon, when Jesus calls Simon Petros, rock. He's not a rock, but because he called him a rock, he's going to make him into a rock. And that's exactly what goes on with us when God calls us. You know, one of my favorite words, he's called us, saint. Love that word. You guys are saints and I I hate that uh, Roman Catholicism has stolen that word from the Bible, the word saint is the word holy. That's it. Just plural holy. So when you have it by itself, it must mean the holy ones, or holy people, holy men, holy women. The holy ones. Saints. Did you know God calls us saints? Saints. Acts 9.13, Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. your Christians in Jerusalem. Um, Acts 9.41, Peter gave her his hand, raised her up, and then he called the saints and the widows, and he presented her alive. Romans 1.7, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints talking about the Holy Spirit Paul says he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for intercedes for the saints Romans 12:13. contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality saints 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 can you read all of them? you might think well God obviously doesn't know me very well if he's calling me a saint Follow me around for ten minutes, you know, and you'll see that I'm no saint. That's not it at all, actually. It's not that God's ignorant of what we truly are. It's rather that in calling us holy, in calling us saints, in declaring us saints, God intends to make us what He's called us to be, holy. In calling us what we're not, He's calling us and enabling us to become that which He's already called us to be. That's good news for us sitting here Wednesday night Grace Community Church. It's good news because it means that our becoming pure and spotless and holy, our becoming children of God and acting like children of God and fully reflecting the image of God, it's not resting right here. Glory be to God. In, in calling us saints and holy, we can rest assured that the sovereign King of the universe intends to see to it that he makes us the very thing he's already declared us to be. Just like that first ray of light in Genesis 1, when he said, let there be light. There wasn't a question of whether or not the light would be able to pull it off. The rest of the universe, if there was, the rest of the universe, didn't sit back and say, oh, let's see if the light can make itself real quick. No, there wasn't light. But when he said it, it knew His Word has the creative power. God's Word always has the creative power. God's Word is the rock, actually. His his Word is the rock that creates the church, that creates faith in us, right? His Word is what creates the people of God all throughout the, the entire Scriptures. There was going to be light because God said there was light, and God is truth, and God's Word is just this raw, universal power. Let there be light, and there was. Not because it made itself, because God, God's Word brought it into existence. If God says we are holy, then doggone it, we will be holy. We will be holy. His Word depends on it. I just showed you the, the, the 50 verses that refer to us as saints. Even though standing here, we know we're not saints. Guess what? He said it, it's going to happen. His Word is making us that as we speak. In thousands of years, God is yet to break or alter His work. I think you can walk out of here, rest assured, He's not going to start with us tonight, right? So just go through Scripture and make a list of all... This would be a cool exercise. Make a list of all the things that God has said about us as believers united in Christ. What What has He said about us? Pure, spotless, without blemish, without wrinkle, presented to Christ on the last day without fault, Holy, loved, rulers, judges, heirs to the throne of Christ, inheritors of the eternal promised land of God, inhabitants of the new Jerusalem where God dwells day and night with with His people, new creatures, the old is gone, brothers of Jesus, friends of Jesus, sons of God. Sitting here today in ourselves, we are none of those things. We're not those things anymore tonight than Simon was the rock of the kingdom of God when Jesus gave him the nickname. But praise God, Jesus has the foresight to call us the things he knows we are not now, but will one day make us to be. And that and that alone, the power of the word of Christ to make us what he's called us to be, that is our sure and blessed hope. As we lay our heads on the pillow tonight having failed the, the millionth time to be what we should be, but knowing that one day by His power working in us in fulfillment of His Word, we will one day be what He's called us because He's determined to will and work in us according to His good pleasure. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, uh, we are we are humbled that You would, first of all, be hospitable towards us. Thank You for defining the ultimate ultimate encyclopedic definition of hospitality we should, we should open the encyclopedia to H and see gospel under hospitality Lord what a definition what a picture of the gospel that you have welcomed me into your eternal family God and forgive me and forgive us for having closed fists around our lives for for only letting in that which we deem worthy and holy and righteous when we sit at your table and dine with you and have no right whatsoever to be there outside of Christ. God, help us to open up our hands. Help us to open up our lives. Help us to start with each other and extend grace and extend unmerited hospitality towards one another here. Maybe even starting by eating together and then hanging out together, and then getting invested and involved with each other. And then, Lord, let that open up and extend to our community and even beyond, Father, as we take the gospel out. And thank you for for humbly we say thank you for calling us and declaring us to be holy. When we know what we are, we know what we've done today. We know the things that we've thought and the people that we've betrayed and the the evil that dwells within. And yet you have spoken a powerful word over us, holy, even as you are holy, pure and spotless, Lord. Let that delight our hearts today and give us comfort that as we pursue holiness, we're not fighting an uphill battle, Lord. We're, We're fighting a battle that's already been accomplished on our behalf. We love you. Praise you, Lord. Amen.